Well, good afternoon. My name is Don Schwer, and I want to welcome you to our podcast where top healthcare executives share personal stories and their leadership strategies. And today I'm excited and privileged to have Kieran Galhu join us. Uh, Kieran is currently the executive chairman at Signifier Medical Technologies. He also holds a number of director board positions at both public and private organizations. Uh, prior to that, he was the chief executive officer of Care Fusion, and prior to that, chief executive officer for ResMed, and specifically on Care Fusion uh, and leadership as it relates to ResMed and Care Fusion. He has had stellar results and to help to lead both organizations to become market leaders. ResMed is over $3 billion organization today, med equipment and technology. And CareFusion, he helped to lead and guide that organization up through their acquisition with Becton Dickinson in 20, uh, 2015 for over $12 billion. So uh, we're really lucky to have Kieran join us. He also is a leader that is both positive and energetic and has great employee engagement at any organization he's a part of. So again, uh, Kieran, thanks for, thanks for joining today. Thank you, Don. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Well, I, I know we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about the board companies and also your work at CareFusion and maybe your future thoughts in healthcare. But before I did that, I wanted to kind of go backwards a little bit and ask you if there was anything in particular that really helped guide you into the healthcare industry. And, and if, you know, you always, when you first started, thought you were going to be leading uh, major medical organizations like CareFusion, ResMed, et cetera. Anything in particular that really influenced you? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a good question, but I, I, you know, if I had to summarize it, I'd say it's, it's, you know, as Jim Collins would say, it was really more return on luck. Um, you know, I started my career with General Electric in a, in a very industrial business. I uh, went back to school and then, and then went to Procter & Gamble where I was in a consumer business. And then a, a former colleague of mine at GE who turned out to be a housemate of mine at uh, Harvard Business School told me about a family-owned European company with a steel manufacturing business, but also had a healthcare distribution business. In fact, it was the largest on the Iberian Peninsula. And uh, they had just acquired a U.S. and Italian-based company, uh, which was an in vitro diagnostic, and they, and they needed someone to help them integrate a new global alliance. And so, you know, it, what was interesting to me, actually, is because of my background on the industrial side, and I was just curious more than anything else about the uh, the healthcare side, but it wasn't it, it wasn't something that at the time that I understood well enough to see. So then that that company was like uh, a lot of challenge leveraged buyouts. We successfully grew it. We took it public, um, and and during that time, I, I really caught the bug of being in a business that actually helped people live longer and better lives, uh, and realized that there were many facets and, and parts of the medical technology field. So, you know, since then, it just really lit a fire. Um, and I left from there into a, a genetics business, just as the first human genome was being sequenced, uh, and then participated in decentralized diagnostics, sleep apnea therapeutics, diversified hospital products, just really seen a gamut. And and uh, each time I go into a new business, I find something that I, that I really love about it. Well, as you look at, uh, you're a member now of a, a number of different medical organizations' boards. How do you choose which board to jump on at this point, and uh, what are the requirements, if you will? You know, there's uh, several factors I look for. Um, first, I, I have to respect the mission of the company, uh, the, the mission that they're pursuing. 
you know, does it help patients? Is it good for healthcare economics or making healthcare more accessible and affordable? There's got to be a theme there that I can uh, embrace uh, and for, for multiple facets of my life. And, and then I need to admire the other board members and, and the management team. There's got to be a group of people that I want to sort of get in the trenches with because, you know, lots of things happen during the, the life cycle of a company. Um, I need to believe that they're ethical uh, and engaged and they're, they're doing what they're doing for the right reasons. Uh, and then finally, I, I need to feel that I can both contribute and learn. Uh, you know, I, I only want to spend time on those situations where I feel I can, you know, improve outcomes uh, and at the same time where I think I can feed my intellectual curiosity. Are there any particular sectors within healthcare that you focus on? Are there, do you gauge the growth and say, you know what, I'm like, I want to get into that kind of growth sector? You know, I, I, there's no single sector that I would say that I, that I focus on. Um, much of it, again, has to go down to the, into the core mission and whether or not I think that they can improve the access and the cost uh, and the quality of, of healthcare. And there are many ways to do that, right? So if you, you look at some of the companies that I'm engaged in now, you know, they range from uh, highly innovative cardiovascular structural heart type of products uh, all the way to pharmaceutical products that are trying to get at the, uh, the source of certain disorders and help them, um, you know, be not only identified, but treated at an early stage or earlier course of action. So it, th- there's really not a single avenue that I like to pursue. I like to keep a broad spectrum. And if you look, you've had the ability now to manage both small and large organizations, are there key characteristics of a successful company now that you're on these boards? Uh, what comes out at you that say this is a common thread that you see? Well, I, th- I think if you focus on the patient first uh, and then focus on the economic second, but with that, you know, without, without a focus on the patient, the, the company really has no right to exist. Um, and then without a focus on the economics, the company will lose the ability to be able to serve those patients. So, you know, it's two areas that I, I personally don't believe that those two areas are in conflict with one another. In fact, I believe that over time they're, they're self-supportive. Um, but I think you have to have those keys to begin uh, to believe you're, you're in a company that can succeed. Uh, the, the next but linked area is, is that in order to, whether you're small or large, you need to continually innovate. Uh, and you have to invest in innovation as if, you're, you know, as if your future depends on it because it, it likely does depend on it. Um, but you know, it is important. I, I do want to distinguish between invention and innovation because a lot of times I think people confuse those things. In my mind, innovation is only useful if somebody is willing to pay for it. And you, you've seen a ton of companies that have come uh, out with what they think of as innovative technologies, but it doesn't hit a market need. It doesn't help improve outcomes. It doesn't help reduce the cost of care. And, and what happens is those, those companies who can't uh, hit or target those areas go by the wayside. So a very simple concept of innovation, but innovation in a way that people are willing to pay for it. Um, you know, it's funny because in, in, in the old days and in other industries, you could you know, slap a, a new and improved sticker on a box. And and that was about all it took uh, for, for success. And, and it was true even in certain parts of medical technology. But but that just doesn't happen anymore. There, there has to be a why to the claims of new and improved. And they, those, those claims have to really be targeted towards the patient or towards the healthcare system. As you um, 
look back now, you had the ability to run organizations that uh, had thousands of employees, and now you're on the board of multiple companies that uh, are large and small. Do you miss uh, running a business, if you will, and and being, let's say, a chief executive officer versus a, a member of the board? Yeah, it's it, it is a it's a huge change, uh, and I can tell you that for the first six months or so after I, I left uh, Care Fusion, it was. Uh, it was a very difficult period, you know, because what you miss, you miss the daily interaction with teams. You miss the ability uh, to be around a table and problem solve together, uh, to go through the difficult times and, and to come out the other side and, you know, sometimes not come out the other side, but, but you do it as a team. So, you know, as a board member, you get some of that uh, and you get it sporadically, but, but it's not the same thing. It really is not. Um, so I miss that. I, I miss that uh, to, in, in a big way. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I, you know, I, I love the process of mentorship. And for me, uh, most boards that I go on, that's the primary role that I'm there for, which is to help mentor and guide uh, a developing team and particularly a developing CEO. Uh, and, uh, and that brings me great satisfaction. So um, look, there's always things that you miss when, you, when you're doing one thing, but on, on the other side with the board membership, it, get, it lets me interact with more teams and more categories, and, uh, and there's a lot of fun to that, too. Right. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about CareFusion. Uh, you had taken over for and a retiring CEO. What was your mission as you, as you joined on to CareFusion? What was your main objective as you came into that role? Well, you know, when I first came on, there were several objectives. Um, the first was really to reestablish credibility with the external world. You know, the, the thing to remember is that um, two years after the uh, Care Fusion had spun from Cardinal, we as a company had missed earnings consensus seven out of the late last eight quarters. Uh, we had hired over a thousand people as part of the spin from Cardinal Health. And then when those um, returns weren't there, you saw a lot of those same people that were, were being uh, let go from the company. Uh, there was actually a, a, a government investigation into certain selling practices that wasn't public, but that I knew about as an incoming CEO um, that had to be uh, handled. And, and quite frankly, there was some cultural mismatches that were occurring that really were, were was causing and exacerbating the, uh, the problems in the company. So, you know, there were some great theories on what the culture of the company should be, and there were posters on the wall but we weren't necessarily living to those. So when I first came in, the, the objectives were really to you know, reestablish that credibility with the external world. Um, and to do that, we needed to do a deep dive on what we had, that we'll, you know, what was working, uh, where we wanted to go over time. So what was going to be our strategic objectives and, and really question those and, and make sure that we believed in them and, and could achieve them. Um, and then what were the challenges to make that vision a reality? So, uh, you know, what we did is we, we immediately eliminated a layer of management between myself and the business units to make sure that I was as close to the market as possible. We engaged this strategic review process. We, we, we uh, brought in some external help as well as internal team members to identify where we could best grow over time. Uh, we engaged a, a major effort to identify how we could better align our cost structures, uh, an effort that was driven by our, our CFO, Jim Heinrichs. While at the same time, as we were getting our cost structure in line, we wanted to increase the investment in patient meaningful innovation. 
right? So we, we needed to better resource areas that impacted customer outcomes while decreasing investment in areas that, that didn't impact the customer. Um, and finally, we, we had to grow you know, the operating income from really a, a, uh, a market lagging to a market leading. And so, you know, those were the first things that were on our mind, and those are the first actions that we took to um, turn the company around and, and become more patient-focused and, uh, and investor-friendly. Were, was an objective to seek an outside acquisition at that time, or was it all internally, organically uh, focused? The intention was both. Um, and, you know, what you should know, actually, within the first it was several months of when I came on board, there was, there was already a plan where we sold off um, about 15%. So not only did we not add, we subtracted. We sold off $700 million worth of, of revenues almost right away because they were non-strategic. We weren't differentiated and, you know, we couldn't drive value from them. So it weren't part of the primary mission. Um, then when you looked at the growth opportunities, my, my firm belief is you don't have the right to do acquisitions until you have established your ability to organically grow. You have to exercise and develop the muscles to organically grow. So job one was to feed the innovation machine to make sure that we provided our commercial teams the best possible products, um, while at the same time trying to simplify the processes in the company to get out of our own way. We, we, we had tremendous people in the company, and um, – you know, there, there was just there was a lot of process deficiencies that didn't let them help the customers. So you have to get that right first, and then on the R and D side, you know, there's multiple um, horizons of of R and D investment. Right, the first horizon is is going to be um, where you're doing sustaining engineering. You're basically keeping the products that you have now. You're, you're making sure that they can stay on market. Then you have incremental investment where you're taking those products and you are making them incrementally better in either cost or outcomes or whatever the, you know, the direction is for that, that product line. And then lastly, you're going after this more um, sort of a blue ocean sort of, of avenue where you are uh, innovating in a way to get into new markets, into new areas or new product categories that you're not yet in. The company was doing a pretty darn good job in phase one. There was nothing being done in phase two, and we were already investing in phase three. So what we did is we cut phase three until we could get phase one and two. So you can grow organically, you can have the products to grow organically. And then over time, we both invested in that phase three, the blue ocean, new innovation, and augmented that with M&A. So that was sort of a two-pronged approach in order to drive that growth. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Do you yeah. find it difficult to get the employees behind this vision? Uh, did you have to do any extra steps to uh, get to raise employee engagement relative to the objectives you had? Uh, if you if you go from the beginning, uh, there was an enormous amount of employee dissatisfaction within the company, right? And, and part of that was that we had grown the company, as I mentioned, quite aggressively at spin, where we added a lot of heads, and then we immediately pulled them back, number one. And number two, when you miss seven out of eight quarters, what it's basically you're telling the organization that um, they're not winning, right? And people want to win. They, they want to feel successful. And then finally, the way that we were making decisions, the, the cultural attributes of the company didn't necessarily map 
to the words that were being provided, you know, about how we cared about patients and how we cared about each other. Um, we, we weren't necessarily living those things. So from an employee engagement perspective, it was really a series of uh, events of making promises to the organization and then living up to those promises. Um, and also being very open and direct with changes that were occurring. You know, when, when you try to move spend from places that don't touch customers to those places that do touch customers and patients, that means there are, is going to be a change in personnel. And so in, in certain parts of the business, it felt like we were shrinking. While at the same time, as a total company, we were actually growing. It's just that we were growing in a different place and a different way. So, you know, we started by just being very honest and upfront with what changes that we, we had to make and why we were making those changes and the fact that it wasn't going to be easy. So just being direct. And then we had to, you know, walk the walk uh, or walk the talk. You know, what is it? Uh, is it Mark Twain that said, the, the older I get, the more that I, I watch what a person does, not what he says. Mm-hmm. And so it was really more about demonstrating and making decisions around, for instance, patient care. Uh, and there, there's a great story I have that, so in the infusion area, uh, a division that was run by J.C. Carillas, there was a, a customer, large customer, uh, who had many, many pumps, uh, infusion pumps, and they were having quality issues. And, and our, our understanding and strong hypothesis was the challenge was the customer was uh, maintaining the equipment in an improper way. That being said, we, we couldn't necessarily come to agreement on that up front. And so JC, without asking permission from anyone, including his boss, Tom Leonard, who was a fabulous leader of the, uh, of the division that he was running with, um, JC decided that because the issue with the pumps represented a risk to patient safety, even though we couldn't agree with the patient, he authorized a $7 million switch out of all the pumps. And we as a company ate $7 million at once, even though we thought we were in the right. And to me, that was a story I wanted to tell again and again, because I was very proud of him for doing that. Because he did what was important for patient care, regardless of whether, you know, it was the customer or us that was right or wrong. Didn't matter. You did what was important for the customer. It hurt our bottom line. It put us, you know, in a difficult position, but that was okay because it was for the right reasons. And that's the kind of stuff that we have to start doing and we have to start communicating to the organization so everybody could understand how they should make decisions in an environment where you know, we're very decentralized and you can't be with everybody when all these decisions are being made. Well, it's interesting, and I think it kind of gets to a managerial style. You've had care fusion and allowing your managers to, to make tough decisions. Uh, I, being a part of care fusion, I also viewed your style as very positive, very energetic, authentic, if you will. Um, and I think that helped to uh, elevate the employee engagement, the excitement, the positive nature to the direction that we were taking. If you were to characterize your management style, I'm curious, I, uh, how would you characterize your style of management? Well, you know, I, first of all, I, I believe in openness and transparency um, because I believe in teamwork. You know, I'm very family driven. It, it's really formed a lot of who I am, the way that I grew up and, and hopefully the way that, that I raised my children. So to me, you know, you start with the idea of what what's important in life, and what's important is is other people that you're 
you're with. So I try very hard um, to to remember that throughout the daily challenges of what you're you know we all go through in business. Um, I also strongly believe in in um, creating safe environments where you can debate issues in a non-personal way. Uh, some people call it constructive conflict. There's there's other ways of describing it, but but I but I strongly believe that as you you, know, you you get your team around a proverbial table, and an issue comes up, you need to listen to the various voices, and everybody's got to be able to challenge everybody, including me. Right? I, you know, frequently when I um, I'll I'll get in a debate with with folks on the on the team, and I tell them in advance I'm going to pick a side, and I may or may not agree with what side I'm picking, but you're not going to know that. And I, and I do that because I don't want people to yes me because of positional authority. You, you know, so you have to make it safe for people to speak their mind. I firmly believe that most problems come from the top of the organization and most solutions come from within the organization. The people that are the cold face dealing with the patients, dealing with customers, dealing with manufacturing lines. You know, those are the people that know how to fix things. And so our job is to enable and empower and listen to them and then try to resource appropriately based on the, on the guidance of the, uh, of the company. To do that, A, you, you need to empower them, but to empower them, you need B, you need, you need to understand how they're thinking. And so my style is I delegate a lot, but I drill wells. And by drilling wells, I mean you can't get into the, you know, micromanage people in detail of every thing that they're doing. But you do have to trust the way that they're thinking. You have to trust the way that they're approaching problems. You have to trust that they're using the right data in, in solving those problems. So I'll take some very specific issues and I'll go really deep with them, really deep into the details in order to understand and appreciate how they're thinking and also help them understand how I think and approach. And then between the two of us, hopefully, we get in a position where you know we we uh, we don't need to be talking about every topic or every issue. We can delegate more, we can empower more, but we can trust uh, and verify the outcomes. Mm-hmm. As you uh, look back now on your your tenure at Care Fusion, are there any any regrets, or do you feel that there was a missing piece there that you would have rather have gotten at, or do you feel pretty comfortable with the uh, the final acquisition? Oh, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> It's, you know, you, you always regret, you know, uh, when you have to leave the fight, right? So, oh, yeah. um, oh, yeah. you know, so, you know, there's always things that, that we were, you know, marching towards. Uh, there were certain, you know, areas of, of scale that we were, were hoping to develop and, and some innovation that we we're helping to push out. So, but, you know, you know I, I hope that when, when anybody leaves something that there's, there's always something left undone. That's just the way it has to be, right? Sure. Otherwise, you didn't have plans for the future. Right. Right. So now I, you know, the only thing I regret is not being able to work with the, the, the team that I was working with before. You know, I, I, I it was a wonderful team and, and, and I, I miss them dearly, but, uh, but no, other than that, I don't have any regrets. Good. Good. Well, as I segue with our time that we've got left, I want to ask you a couple extra questions. One related to healthcare. We're under some pretty significant change. Well, we always have been, I guess, in healthcare. But um, where do you see healthcare going in the future? Um, I know that's a pretty broad question, but maybe you can take a perspective on a general scale on uh, all the regulations that are coming in and what it might have, what impact that may have on a medical uh, device organization or a med tech organization. 
Well, I, you know, I, I've long believed for many years in a, in a certain trend that I think uh, has been occurring and will continue to occur, which is, you know, there are certain fundamental drivers in, in healthcare. Um, certainly, we have an aging population that is, you know, throughout the globe is driving enormous amount of pressure in healthcare systems, um, where there has to be uh, the ability to, to derive greater efficiencies over time, while at the same time increasing access. Right? So, so we, we need to have those two pronged efforts uh, be realized. And, and to do that, you, um, you, you have some fundamental drivers, right? There's, there's been a desire to try to decentralize care whenever possible to put it in the least costly uh, place. So, you know, instead of being in a, in a very expensive hospital, you want to care for patients if you can in a step-down facility. If not there, you know, eventually you want to be out in more remote settings such as, as somebody's home where the patient bears some of the burden of the uh, keeping the lights on and keeping the heat on, right? So it's a, it's a way of doing it in a much more cost-effective way. We need to figure out how to de-skill or eliminate labor from processes. So if it used to take a physician to do something and now a nurse can do it, great. If it was a nurse and now you can do it as an individual, as a patient yourself, even better, right? So all those things help improve access and they help um, to reduce the costs. Uh, we need to get more predictive so it's not event-driven care, but rather we can, we can schedule the care. And so to do that, we have to understand the, um, the various factors that can indicate a change in physiologic state. And we have to understand how we can intervene and how we can uh, be able to influence that. And so when you put all those things together, you say, what are the enablers? You know, and the enablers frequently are access to uh, broad longitudinal data that allows us to have better understanding and insights to various variables that can either predict or that can be manipulated in order to change outcomes associated with patient care. Right. And you see that, you know, with this explosion and AI and ML and, you, you know, machine learning, and you're looking at the, the integration of data sets throughout the healthcare system and to a certain extent through um, consumer information, which is applied to that. So that data set as it grows, and, and then on top of that, of course, you put genetic data, you, you put gene expression data and all that fun stuff. You start getting a much more holistic patient, uh, uh, picture of these patients. You have access to the changes in those patients' physiologic states, and you have the ability to intervene and interpret. At the same time, you have this idea of how do you take difficult procedures um, that may be experience-dependent uh, for, for, for great outcomes, and how do you democratize that um, throughout the world, right, in, in to, to places that, that may not have access to the uh, you know, to the same experience space, and so you know that's where robotics and the integration of the, the digital architecture around that becomes so critically important, right? Where you can take the experience space of a of a highly experienced surgeon and be able to replicate that in low volume settings and re in remote settings. So I you know for me it's anything that has to do with that knitting together of the information in a way, both longitudinally and throughout the patient's experience, that allows us to make better decisions, intervene earlier, and do it in a more proactive way.
Yeah, excellent. And I think if you look at healthcare, it's an exceptional opportunity sector right now for leading edge type of technologies to do just what you've talked about. I, um, I'm respectful of your time. And, and as we wind down, I, I did have one last question and you talked about mentoring and uh, I know that you're a very, very good mentor. And my question to you is, are there key characteristics or key things you talk about in your mentoring toward individuals that want to grow within an organization? What would be your recommendations uh, to individuals that want to uh, seek a career path that might be similar to yours? Build your tool, tool set uh, and invest for the long run. You know, I, I find so often that as people progress in their career, um, you know, all of us want to uh, be successful however we define that. And sometimes people have this vision that the, a, a title on a business card, um, you know, sooner is more important than developing uh, the skill sets that are associated with being successful in that rules and the, the roles ahead of them. And, and I strongly believe that, you know, you need to think about what you want to learn, uh, what is going to make you more effective as a leader over time, what's going to help you be more agile in being able to face situations that you can't predict right now in businesses that you may not be able to predict right now, um, what's going to help you be more successful in that. And uh, so, you know, in my own career, there were times when I, I took uh, steps back where I, you know, I went from running, you know, 500 person departments to being an individual contributor um, because I wanted to learn something new. I wanted to learn in one case genetics, or I wanted to be part of an organization at an earlier stage of its development. And, and I think it's okay to do that. You have to have the confidence to say that you can succeed in the long run. You understand it's a marathon, but build the skill sets and build the toolbox. Excellent advice. Uh, well, thank you, Kieran. Uh, this is a wonderful conversation and um, very good insights and advice. And uh, we really do appreciate your time. Uh, as we wind down, uh, again, I want to thank you. And, and my hope is that perhaps down the road, we might be able to join you again. So thanks again for your time, We'd love Kieran. to, John. Yeah, thank you so you much. You bet, John. Cheers. That concludes our interview with Kieran Gallagher, Executive Chairman at Signifier Medical Technologies. Thanks for joining us.